Thank you for that wonderful worship this morning. I hope your heart worshiped as mine has and will continue to worship in God's word. It's good to see some of you back from uh, last Sunday. I'm always happy when people come back a second time. But your pastor will be back next Sunday, Lord willing, and everything will be back to normal and everybody will be happy again, right? My wife didn't even come with me today, so uh, she's not feeling well today. And uh, when that happens, it's just better that uh, she stays home and and gets well instead of uh, spreading the joy to everyone else. Uh, I do want to thank you. Uh, Judy Stilson gave me this from the uh, church and the missions committee, the uh, Christmas in July. So Margie and I will open that when uh, we get home, when I get home today. And... uh, Thank you again for that and for the support of your missionaries, for that good report on uh, Nancy Delagana and uh, what an amazing ministry she's had. Uh, she came to both the churches that I pastored here in, in California. Uh, she came as, as a missionary, and I was always worn out just listening to all that she was doing and uh, just an amazing ministry that she's had in and the, the role that uh, this church has had in that ministry. Also, uh, as Tom mentioned, uh, I brought the display with me today uh, for the CARBC, the California Association of Regular Baptist Churches. That is a mouthful, but every part of that name is important, and there is a sheet on the back that explains that name, uh, what is the CARBC. And uh, take a prayer card, if you would. Uh, there are some more of those pens. Tom didn't get all of them. and uh, But that's just a reminder to uh, pray for us and a gift from the CARBC to you. There are also some copies of uh, other literature items, the California Messenger, which is printed by the CARBC, and then the Baptist Bulletin, which is printed by our National Fellowship, the General Association of Regular Baptist Churches. I'm not going to get into the differences on that today. One's a national group, one's a state fellowship. We are part of the same regular Baptist family, but we are distinct organizations and uh, cooperate and work together. And most of our churches in the CARBC are also in the GARBC, but not necessarily, not required to be in both. Okay, I think that's what I need to say by way of introduction. There are some notes in your uh, bulletin as we look today in the Titus chapter 2, a message I've titled, Godly Living in an Ungodly World. And I want to begin with this question for you, you and, and just to, to uh, stipulate that those of us who live here on the Central Coast know that we live in one of the best places in the world to live, don't we? Uh, some people move here for the climate. Uh, some people uh, move here for uh, other reasons, but we all enjoy the climate. And uh, in Santa Maria, uh, I grew up in Santa Maria, and I finally brought my family uh, back to Santa Maria, uh, and uh, they never complained about where Dad brought them that time. And uh, my kids have all pretty much gotten acclimated to living in Southern California, and we know that this is a great area of the world in which to live, this what they call a Mediterranean climate. But let me ask you this. Where would be the hardest place 
for a human being to survive on this planet? Sahara Desert, okay? Anybody want to get a tour group ready and go to the Sahara Desert? Death Valley, there is a reason they call it Death Valley, isn't there? How about Antarctica or the Arctic Circle uh, or Siberia? The hardest places to live, and those are severe, physically severe. Uh, I would say send somebody stronger than I am, send somebody younger than I am, send somebody dumber than I am. No, I shouldn't say that. But, but send somebody that has more of a sense of adventure than my body does at this point in life. But let me ask you this. Where's the hardest place to live the Christian life in the world? Where's the place where biblical values are most challenged? Where a biblical lifestyle would be most ridiculed? Maybe it's where you live already. Since Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, God's people have often lived their lives, in fact, more, most often probably, lived their lives in cultures dominated by ungodliness. And think about the Old Testament saints and the places where they lived, in Egypt and in Babylon, and, and in places that were not conducive to their faith in God, and where their faith in God was diametrically opposed by the, the values and the religious life of the places where they lived. And it was the same in the New Testament with the New Testament Christians in that context of the Greek and Roman culture with its pantheon of gods and with its moral values that were completely different than the moral values of the word of God in many cases. And it's also true of believers today around the world in many different cultures and even in our culture with varying degrees of animosity toward Christianity, where Christians have to flee the countries that they are in. I was talking yesterday to a, a, a missionary that's here working from India. The churches in India sent him to the United States to work with college students. And they have an orphanage in India, but the government, like they have done here in the United States with some social ministries, the government has come in and tried to and has actually shut down their orphanage and taken over that whole uh, matter and putting these kids in homes. And the, the government is diametrically opposed to the values of these Christian orphanages in that country. And this, this man's mother and uh, father were running, uh, his father's a pastor, but his mother was running this orphanage. And, and together they were doing that and getting help from some ministries here in the United States. So there's a place where they're Faith is being opposed by their culture and by their government. Now, the word of God in its entirety gives us help in living godly in an ungodly world. But there are some texts that even more specifically address this situation that we are in. And one of those is Titus chapter 2. And I want you to go with me to that text this morning. If you're using a pew Bible, it's page 998 in your pew Bible, page 998. The New 
The New King James translation of this reads this way in Titus 2 verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Into the island of Crete, where Titus was the pastor, came the gospel. And then later, this letter from the pen of the apostle Paul. Crete is an island about 160 miles long. It varies in width from seven and a half to 38 miles. It's situated about 60 miles from Greece. The Cretans were in the mainstream of Roman culture and godlessness. The Cretans were known as liars. They had a reputation for fraudulence, for avarice, and for fierceness. They were skilled archers, and were hired by Greek armies to assist them in warfare. In verse 12 of chapter 1, Paul makes this comment about the Cretans, quoting from one of their own prophets. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. William Barclay says this about the Cretans. No people ever had a worse reputation in the ancient world than the Cretans. The ancient world spoke of the three most evil seas, the Cretans, the Cilicians, and the Cappadocians. The Cretans were famed as a drunken, insolent, untrustworthy, lying, gluttonous people. Their avarice was proverbial, he says. The Cretans said Polybius, on account of their innate avarice, live in a perpetual state of private quarrel and public feud and civil strife. And you will hardly find anywhere characters more tricky and deceitful than those of Crete. He writes of them, money is so highly valued among them that its possession is not only thought of be necessary, but highly creditable. And in fact, greed and avarice are so native to the soil of Crete that they are the only people in the world among whom no stigma attaches to any sort of gain, whatever. Doesn't matter how you got it, just so you have it. So notorious were the Cretans that the Greeks actually formed a verb to cretize, which meant to lie and to cheat. And they had a proverbial phrase to cretize against a Cretan, which meant to match lies with lies as diamond cuts diamond. Now, this quote in chapter 1, verse 12, is from uh, Epimenides, who lived about 600 B.C. And so their, their reputation had been longstanding, as Paul wrote in the first century. And so... Here were these people known for their deception, people that proverbially were liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. But God had a plan to save them. God had a plan to change them. And this section in verses 11 to 15 is surrounded by exhortations 
exhortations concerning the Christian life. Notice what Paul wrote in verse 9 of chapter 2. Exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity. That is, not acting like a Cretan, but acting like a Christian. That they may adorn the doctrine of, of God our Savior in all things. And then he says, here is why, in verse 11, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It's an explanation about why the Christian's life is to be different from the life of the unsaved. Why the Christian's life in Crete is to be different than it was before they came to faith in Jesus Christ. That the gospel makes a difference in the ethics of our lives, in the way that we live, in our morality. Even if the culture doesn't change, the Christian must change. And as Christians change, we pray that the culture will change as well. It's because of the grace of God. And these verses give us direction about a lot of different, very important theological truths about grace, redemption, substitutionary atonement, about the return of Christ, about the deity of Christ, about the place of good works in the life of the Christian, about the uniqueness of the body of Christ. That's all here in these verses uh, 11 through 14. But it also tells us about the possibility of living godly in an ungodly world. That we don't say, this is the way we live in California this is the way we live in the United States, so that's the way I'm, you know, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. God never says that. He says, wherever your island is, live as a Christian. It gives us hope because sometimes we are overwhelmed by the pressures that we face in our culture. The pressures that we face in our neighborhood, the pressures we face where we work, the pressures we face where we go to school, or where we live, or in our family. So Paul gives us three reasons for living godly in this world. He says, first of all, because of the grace of God. And here's the key concept in verses 11 and 12. The grace of God teaches us to deny ungodliness and to live godly. The grace of God does not teach us to throw off all morals. The grace of God teaches us to find and adopt and practice the morals that God gives in his word. He's, he begins with the appearance of God's grace in verse 11. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It was in the coming of Jesus Christ. It brought salvation. It made provision for everyone. It was not the first appearance of grace, however. That is back in Genesis chapter 6. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. But what is new here is God has pulled back the curtain on his plan of salvation in Jesus Christ, which is centered in grace. It's, uh, the term here is an epiphany. It's like the sun is bursting forth. That marine layer finally clears out. And you can see the beauty of the hills and the beauty of the ocean. And on a clear day, you can see, us, you can see clear to China, right? Oh, the earth's not flat over here, is it? Okay. But you can... It, it, the difference of when there's that marine layer, even 
few miles off the coast and when it is just clear and you can see that blue line between the ocean and the sky. He says, I want you to see clearly the grace of God and God has pulled back the curtain on it. It's the appearing of God's grace. And then there's the instruction in grace, verse 12. Grace teaches us to deny ungodliness. Now, what's ungodliness? When I was a a kid growing up, basically ungodliness was what my parents did not want me to do. It's what my Sunday school teacher did not want me to do. Ungodliness is anything contrary to the character and the word of God. Let me give you an example in our culture. And actually, it's in 1 Timothy chapter 6. The desire for more money that leads a person to falsify their income tax return. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, 1 Timothy 6. So every April, we have a choice to make. Do I report all my income? Do I try to pad my deductions? Do I say I've got seven kids in the house this year? I only had one last year. And I make up Social Security numbers for them. But it's the desire for more money that leads a person to cheat, to falsify a return, to falsify a business report, uh, a business expense report or something like that. It's contrary to the word of God and the character of God. We are to deny ungodliness. We are to deny worldly lusts. And so we have to ask ourselves, what is worldliness? Remember in 1 John 2, it says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For all is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It's not of the Father, but it's of the world, and the world passes away. He uses the term there, love not the world. He used the word cosmos, and we get cosmopolitan from that. A lot of different terms in our, in our English language from that Greek term cosmos. But it has to do with the orderly arrangement of this world, the government, the financial system, education system, uh, arts. All of those things that are part of the organization of our culture, education. So it's not all evil that's part of the world. What is evil is that part of the world that is contrary to the word of God. So my kids could never say, well, Dad, you know, education is part of the world system, so we don't think we should go to school. Okay. So you you understand those distinctions. Uh, And then in Romans 12, he says, be not conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And when Paul talks about world there, he uses a different word from which we get the word age. It's the word ion. And there it's the idea of the thoughts and the maxims, the philosophies that surround the world. It's the atmosphere around the cosmos, the age in which we live. Some of us remember different eras in, the, in American culture, the 50s or the 60s, the 70s, the 80s. Uh, the, the first 10 years of uh, this millennium. And, and even though it's not always distinct, there's obviously transitions between those 10-year uh, periods, those decades, but, but we talk about them as dur- different ages, and, and we would recognize 
fashions and colors and music by that age. That was what surrounded the cosmos at that time. And so worldly lusts are desires that have their origin in our sinful nature or the sinful aspects of the world. In Ephesians 2, Paul uses an interesting phrase where he says, you once walked according to the course of this world, and it's literally according to the age of this world. What was happening in the world at that time? That's what you lived according to. If it was a dial phone, you used a dial phone. If it was a cell phone, you got a cell phone. If it was a smartphone, you got a smartphone. If it was um, a stagecoach, that's the way you took vacation. Okay? So the age of the world, and that is always changing. So... He says to us in Romans 12, don't be conformed to that age of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In 1 John 2, he says, don't love that world. Don't be devoted to it. Don't have an allegiance to it. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't be good citizens of our country. But what I'm saying is that our citizenship, according to Philippians 3, is ultimately in heaven. So the age of this world, the desires of the flesh and of the mind, is the reason I come to this conclusion that worldly lusts are desires that have their origin in our sinful nature or the sinful aspects of our world. Now let me give you an example of how that manifests itself in the world in which we live today. What's happening in the world at this particular time? Some couples in our culture believe living together before marriage is not only okay, but it is the best way to find out if there's compatibility between the two people. So the culture of our day, the age of our world says smart people live together first. It's different than the age of my mother's generation which said, you don't live together first, and if you start living together first, you better get married right away. But today, the attitude of this world is that smart people live together first, to which the Bible would say, no, smart people listen to the God who created us and invented marriage, and we do it his way. So that's a decision that young people growing up in our culture have to make. And not just younger people, many retired people, many people in their, in their later years decide, let's live together, but for financial reasons, let's not get married. That's the smart way to do it financially. But is that the right way to do it biblically? So there is this instruction of grace, deny ungodliness, deny worldly lust, that help us to know how to live on the island where God has put us. And then we are to live soberly, righteously and godly. Soberly means with a sound mind, with self-control, in control of mind and emotions, acting rationally and discreetly. 
And this is a word that is very characteristic of this book. It's used in chapter 1, verse 8. It's required of pastors. In verse 2 of chapter 2, it needs to be taught to older men. In chapter 2, verse 4, it's taught to younger women by older women. In chapter 2, verse 6, it's taught to young men. So here is a characteristic need of, for the people on Crete. They need to be people of sound mind. They need to be people who have their thinking corrected because something is messed up with the way their brains are wired because they've lived in Crete. They've lived in an area where deceit is accepted. Deceit is expected. And God says, we need to rewire your brain. And that's what Romans 12 calls the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Having a mind so saturated with the word of God that you can evaluate the age in which you live. You can think correctly about the age in which you live. And so here was this need throughout the book. And now he brings it to us in verse 12 of chapter 2 of a sound-mindedness and a self-control that was obviously a missing quality on Crete. So island living in Crete was undisciplined and it was unrighteous. So he says to live righteously, what is right in God's sight? To live godly. He's talked about godliness in this book, verse, the first verse of the book. Paul, a bondservant of God and of an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of truth, which accords with godliness. Truth that accords with godliness. Here he says to deny ungodliness and to live godly. Then the, the second reason to live godly, not only because of the grace of God, but secondly, because of the hope of the believer. And the key concept here is this, looking for the, the return of Christ keeps us focused on the godly values of life. Every time in the New Testament where you come to a section that, that speaks about the return of Christ, the rapture of the church, or even the second coming of Christ, there will be a practical application. 1 Thessalonians 4, comfort yourselves. 1 Corinthians 15, be steadfast, unmovable and so on. He calls it a blessed hope. That's the nature of it. It's a blessing to us because it gives us hope. Hope for the believer is confidence. It's not just wishing. It's confidence because our faith is in God. So the nature of our hope is it is blessed. It's a blessing. It's a joy. It's a benefit to have this hope. The realization of our hope will be with the return of Christ the appearing of Christ, the blessed hope and glorious appearing. It, uh, it's the same word that's used in verse 11 of the first coming of Christ. He appeared to all men. The second coming of Christ will be an appearing as well. And then the person of our hope, the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We could translate the phrase, the great God who is our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's one of those places where the grammar of the Greek text tells us 
that he's equating God and Christ and is a strong affirmation of the deity of Christ. So what is our hope? When he comes for us, we'll have a new body. When he comes for us, we'll have a perfect heart. When he comes for us, we'll have eternal bliss and joy. So why live godly? Because of the grace of God, because of the return of Christ. And thirdly, because of the sacrifice of Christ. Verse 14, who gave himself for us. It was substitutionary. The key concept here is this. Christ redeemed us to be a unique people, displaying purity and good works, zealous of good works. It was substitutionary. He gave himself for us. It was redemptive that he might redeem us from every lawless deed. And it was purifying, purify for himself his own special people. God says, my people are going to be pure. That's why I have sanctified them. That's why I call them saints. Does purity ever go against the prevailing winds on the island where you live? I found something that uh, it just amazed me, and I want to share it with you. It was called The Pros to Profanity. And it, the article, and, and I, then I went on, on the internet and found there's all kinds of articles that say basically the same thing. But here are some of the main benefits to using profanity. Pain management. Stress relief. This is for the one using it, not for the one receiving it. It's associated with honesty. You tell people what you really think. It helps in self-expression. It gives you improved health. The supposed pros to profanity. That's the culture in which we live. We see it more and more in the leaders of, in, in our world, uh, entertainment, in athletics, in politicians, and even in preachers. There's been, been some debate about whether preachers should use profanity to make a point so the people really understand that they're serious about it. Chapter 2, verse 8 in Titus. Here is the formula for spiritual health and healthy speech. Sound speech that cannot be condemned. In Galatians 4, he talks about gracious speech, seasoned with salt, the prevention of decay, having a purifying influence. That is God's formula for the speech of a purified people. You see how it is diametrically opposed to much of what is in the culture. And I've I've had people tell me that they know that when they are at work and they are in their workplace and the people around them are more careful about how they speak because they know that person is a believer. And sometimes they walk into a situation and they hear that language and then apologies are made. They ought to be apologizing not only to that person, they ought to be apologizing to the creator because that was not his design for the way that we speak. And I just bring that up as an illustration of the winds of our culture. 
and how forceful they are in the islands where we live. And then it is also motivating, verse uh, uh, 14, it's not only substitutionary, redemptive, and purifying, but it's motivating zealous of good works, having a zeal for good works. Just can't wait to be involved in good works in areas of life where we we are in obedience to God. And those good works bring blessing to people around us and blessing to God as well. So Paul says the people in Crete, you need to make some changes because God has saved you. The grace of God has come. Christ is coming back. And Christ died to change you. Kind of goes along with what we were talking about in the the Bible study hour this morning in Galatians 5 and 6 later. But the idea of do not be entangled again. That God, that God has saved us out of that background, whatever it may be. Don't get entangled in, again in that. But I know what you're thinking. I've never been to Crete. I'm not a Cretan. I'm a Californian. Well, in some people's mind, it's not much better. <laughs> uh, when I go to a, the national conference for the GARBC, I tell people I'm the state representative for the CARBC for California, and they look at me like, there are really Christians in California? That's really what they think. But I want you to think about this as California. Our state spends millions and billions of dollars to prevent pollution and to clean up pollution. Uh, Remember when they cleaned up Avila Beach, tore that whole waterfront uh, area down, the street and everything, and and cleaned it up and and rebuilt it much nicer than it was before. Uh, There's a church in Santa Maria, First Baptist Church, which was uh, part of an old oil lease many years ago. And the church bought the property in the mid-1960s. Before that, it had been an oil lease. And part of that property had been the sump area when there was too much oil and it it spilled out and so on. It would just funnel it down into a, a holding pond, and, and, and that was on the property of not only First Baptist Church, but some houses in that area. And back in the 90s, they came in and started cleaning that up. I had a friend who had his house torn down, and, and he actually relocated. Uh, but they tore down some houses because there was oil underneath. There was oil in, in underneath uh, some school buildings and, and uh, parking lot and playground at First Baptist Church and Valley Christian Academy. Well, the oil company came in and cleaned it all up, tore down the building, gave them money to build a new building. Why do we do that? Nobody wants to send their kids to a school where they come home and and there's black stuff on their hands and say, what happened in school? Oh, we're playing in the tar pits today. You know, no, most parents don't think that's the healthiest thing for kids to do. And there were places where you could see the oil oozing up uh, in the area right close to their gymnasium. 
So we are concerned about those kinds of things. But are we as concerned about the moral contamination that pervades our culture, that impacts our thinking and our families, and can even infiltrate our churches? God's grace has changed us. Christ's return keeps us focused. Christ's sacrifice has purified us. The Cretans were in one sense normal people, normal Roman citizens of their day. But in other sense, they had one of the worst reputations of any one of any people in the empire. And onto their island and into their culture came the grace of God. As people were saved, they needed specific instructions on how to live a godly life in an ungodly world. And Paul instructs them clearly on how to do that. But we find ourselves on ungodly islands as well. Our neighborhoods, our work, our places of education, our places of recreation and leisure. And how do we live and why do we live in a godly way? By taking heed to the word of God, by thinking correctly, having a sound mind, by putting the word of God into practice, by evaluating the scripture and the culture, understanding both, but yet following the scripture. This time of the year in California, about anywhere we travel, we will find some smoke, won't we? Last summer, we were up in Montana. The fires from Canada were spilling into Montana and uh, a lot of of smoke in the air then. Uh, This last January, I was traveling down to Thousand Oaks from Santa Maria, and I had to drive through Santa Barbara and Carpinteria where there was so much smoke. And on the way down in the morning, it was not too bad. On the way back in the evening, it was smoky all the way into Santa Maria. I felt really odd driving my car with a mask on inside the car because of the contaminants outside the car. But that's what I did because those contaminants from that smoke were unhealthy. We need to take our Bibles and use the word of God as the filter against the contaminants that come onto the islands in which we live. Living godly in an ungodly world. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for this text, for its pertinence to us. And Father, I don't know all the islands that the people of this congregation face, but I know they're there. And wherever those islands are that they live, and whatever the winds of adversity may be, whatever the contaminants in the air may be, I pray that you will encourage them to take your word and use that as a filter. That's a purifying filter. That we would be the people that you've designed us to be in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.